Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, what a beautiful day that you have made. Lord, this is the day the Lord has made. Lord, we will rejoice and be glad in it. And Lord, the reason we are rejoicing today is because you are God. You reign supreme above all things. You are on the throne. Lord, we are your people, God, and we desire to hear from your word today. We want to know what you have to say to us. We want to submit to you. We want to obey you. And Lord, sometimes when we hear your word, there's conflict in our hearts. Sometimes we want to rise up. We want to do our own thing. God, I pray that you would cause us to bow to you today. I pray that your word would be precious to us. I pray that it would be our great treasure, our great delight, Lord, that we would follow hard after you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty work today through your gospel, Lord, of changing lives, of saving us and drawing us closer to you. Strengthen our faith, Lord, convict us of sin and drive us closer to your son, Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word. May your spirit enable us to understand what the living God has to say to us today. May you open ears, open eyes, cause us to see you and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, life is full of afflictions. If you haven't gotten that message after the past three weeks, then you haven't been listening. We've been talking about that. That's been one of the main themes of this passage. And really, it's one of the main themes throughout the whole Bible. His life is full of afflictions. It seems like we are almost always in affliction of some sort, little or big. Sometimes God gives us a little teaser, right? We go out of it for a short period of time, but then we're back in it. And the longer we live, the greater the afflictions are, aren't they? And the more afflictions we face, we think we've faced them all, but then it comes to find out there's something we didn't know. There's a new affliction we didn't realize. And sometimes we find ourselves constantly living under affliction, don't we? We find that we have to kind of deal with it. And life becomes one long affliction. It almost becomes natural for us. The point is, we are people who are, whose lives are filled with affliction. And what I want us to understand today, a little farther along, is that every one of us are coming closer and closer to the ultimate affliction, and that is death. You see, all of us are really not much different than each other. Our lives are full of affliction. We're weak and frail people, and we're all headed down the road towards death. We're all dying people. We can sometimes navigate for a time through life, and the afflictions that we face and look pretty strong, can't we? For a time, we can look pretty strong. But eventually, we're all going to face the reality of death. And this is exactly the way it's supposed to be in a fallen world. And understand what I say there. This is the way it's supposed to be in a fallen world. You see, when man sinned in the garden, man came under the curse, didn't he? God brought a curse on mankind. And that curse is where all the problems of life come from. Affliction, diseases, tsunamis earthquakes, death, decay. It's all from the curse that God God brought on mankind as a consequence for our sin. And why did he do this? And listen to this. The curse is for our good. And that isn't that strange. Isn't that weird to hear? The curse is for our good. It is designed 
to lead us towards God. It is designed to show us there is a problem. Things are not right. We need a Savior. We need to be delivered. And it's not found in us. It's not found around us. There's only one who can deliver us. And that is God. Affliction is therefore for our good. And it reminds us that there is a great problem. The worst thing in the world is to go around in life and think there is not a problem. To think we do not need God. So we praise God for the afflictions. Because it has a purpose and a goal. And it is designed to lead us towards God. Now I want to say this. This is really important. One of the greatest problems in our society today is that we have hidden ourselves from the reality of death. Have you ever thought about that? The world is thinking about how they do things. And there is a design, there is some kind of an objective to hide the reality of death from humanity. We do everything we can to hide it. In fact, I've done, I've done funerals before, and I've been to funerals, and there is this desire to hide the reality of death even at funerals. Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. But it is not for our good that this happens. It is not for our good to hide the reality of death. We need to confront the reality of our death if we are ever to see our need for our Savior. You see, all it does is feed our pride. And when we feed our pride by ignoring the reality of death, we get big heads. A wise scholar once said that. I'm just kidding. I came up with that. We, 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 we get big heads, don't we? We get big heads. We become prideful when we ignore the reality of death. It is a big, huge problem. Listen to Ecclesiastes 3 verse 2 that tells us we need to push back against this trend. We need to consider the reality of our frailty, which is especially magnified in our death. And this is what it says. It is better to go to the house of mourning, a funeral, than to go to the house of feasting, which is a party. And the question is why? Why is that? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. We can only live rightly when we are living in reality of our mortality. We need to have that in our minds. Last week we witnessed King Hezekiah successfully navigating a very difficult crisis, didn't we? It was a national crisis. And he overcame through faith. He looked to God and he was that great example of what it looked like to be victorious over the enemy. It was an incredible chapter. And we saw basically chapters 1 through 35 culminating. This is what Isaiah has been teaching throughout the whole book of Isaiah. He's been leading us to see that we need to trust in God because he delivers us. And Isaiah perfectly embodies that, doesn't he? He repents. I'm sorry, Hezekiah, the king of Judah. He repents. He turns to God. He prays a great prayer. And he looks to God for victory. And we witness this incredible incredible victory from God. Today we witness King Hezekiah facing his own mortality. We see him facing a personal crisis, and this is the greatest crisis anyone can face, his own death. He moves from the heavenly heights of victory to the earthly hell of his own mortality. Why in the world would Isaiah follow up such a victory with such weakness. 
And I think this is what Isaiah is trying to do in teaching us in Isaiah. I think he is showing us that Hezekiah cannot save us. Hezekiah is not the Savior. We've been looking forward to a Messiah, haven't we? We've been looking forward to chapter 7, chapter 8 of Isaiah, speaking over and over again, the Messiah is coming, someone's going to come and save us. And we saw Hezekiah and we thought, maybe it's him. He has been amazing, by the way. He's brought great reform, an amazing servant of God. But he is not the point of Scriptures. He cannot save us. And I think what Hezekiah is saying, and what Isaiah is saying, is we need to contemplate the reality that we are, even the best of us, are nothing more than mortal. The best of us are dying. The best of us are weak. And the best of us need a Savior. And the best any of us can do is point to the one who can save us from our sins. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the life of Hezekiah today. We're going to see that he, in his frailty and his weakness, he's going to point us to Christ. So, we must beware of looking to any human being to save us, no matter how good they are. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5 and 11. He warns us, in a sense, of looking to any humanity, any man, no matter how good they are, for our salvation. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Notice that. Who is Paul and who is Apollos? They are nothing more than servants through whom you have believed. That is their purpose in life, to lead you to faith. And he says, what are they? But nothing more than servants through whom you have believed. And then he says in verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. So I want to imagine coming face to face with the reality of your own death. That's what I want us to think of for a moment. And that's exactly what happens to Hezekiah here in verse 1. He comes face to face with the reality that he's going to die. And I want us to see that Hezekiah is very sick. He's not just sick, he's very sick. He's at the point of death and he knows it. You know, people get sick, some people get really sick. He is really sick. He is staring death in the face. Okay? And then God comes along and tells him, Hezekiah, you're sick, right? As if he didn't know it, (laughs) as if he didn't know it already. And he says, Hezekiah, you're going to die. Get yourself in order. You're about to die. And this almost sounds cruel, doesn't it? I mean, imagine going to someone who's on their deathbed, who knows they're dying, and coming up to them and saying, guess what? You're sick, and you're going to die. Get your stuff in order. And you're like, I know that. (laughs) I know I'm dying already. And so the question is, why in the world, why in the world would God need to confirm to Hezekiah that he's going to die? And we're not told here. It doesn't tell us explicitly. But I think, I believe the reason that God is telling him this is to tell Hezekiah that I am in control. That I am supreme. I am in control of life and I am in control of death. I am over everything. I am in charge here, Hezekiah. So what, what do we see here? But a strong, a mighty, a powerful king of all people, the king of Judah, who is humbled to the dust, facing his own mortality. God has brought him to a point where he can't ignore the reality of his weakness. Even the kings among us are nothing more than mortal men. Even the kings among us are nothing more than dying men. When it comes down to it. 
My question for you is, are you any better than Hezekiah? Are you able to conquer the curse? Are you stronger than death? Are you wiser than death? Are you able to in any way out, 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 outwit the reality of death? And the answer is, none of us can do this. You are no better than Hezekiah. Do you realize at any, morning, at any moment God could bring you face to face with the reality of your death? That God could at any moment bring you to that point. And we know that what follows death is judgment. How much control does God have over your life and death? Well, God tells us that he has ordained every second of our lives. We will not have one moment or one second more than God has ordained for us. Not one minute more and not one minute less. And that's what Psalm 139 verse 6 tells us. In your book were written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were none of them. God tells us that he is the one who kills and he is the one who makes alive. In Deuteronomy 32, 29, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. heal. There is none other that can deliver out of my hand. So how might you respond if you are faced with the reality of your death? In reality, we are all faced with the reality of our death. It is coming. It's just a matter of time. So how does Hezekiah respond? Well, we're showed how Hezekiah responds in verses 2 through 3. Notice what Hezekiah does here, this great king. He turns to the wall. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I guess it means he turns away from the people. And he weeps bitterly. Here is the king, the great king of Judah, shaking and crying like a baby. And most importantly... He prays in verses 2 through 3. And what does he say here? He basically tells God, he says, I don't want to (laughs) die. I don't want to die, Lord. I want to live. And he gives some reasons why he should live. And just listen to these reasons. He says, I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole, which means undivided heart, and I have done what is good in your sight. Now, In general, we know that what he says here is true. If you look at his life, he was devoted to God. Listen to 2 Kings 18, verse 5. This is a really fascinating and incredible description of his entire life. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, after him, nor among those who were before him. You can even look at 2 Chronicles 32. And you will find that he brought great reforms to Judah. He was an amazing, faithful man who trusted in God. And there's a sense to where what he says here is kind of true. And I want to make this clear as well, because when we read this, there are so many different understandings about what he's saying. Um, I do not believe that he is basing the reason why God should save him on his own goodness. If you look at verse 17, he will reflect back on his afflictions. And he will say that God saved him out of love. And he will say that God cast his sins aside. So he is not saying he is perfect. He is not saying, in fact, he repented. And so he's not saying he's perfect. And we got to be careful of that. So this might not be the perfect model of prayer. This might not be exactly the way you should pray when you're in this situation. But it is prayer nonetheless. And it is the best he could do at this moment. And I want us to understand that. And sometimes this is the best we can do, isn't it? 
Sometimes the best we can do is cry out to God. We don't even know what to pray for. And the good news is that the Bible tells us in Romans that God intercedes for us. He gro- the Spirit groans for us with words that we cannot express. And praise God that when we don't know how to pray, we don't know what to pray for, at our weakest moments, we don't pray all the right things, we know that God is the one who prays in our behalf. So can't we praise God for that today? And we can be thankful that God prays. But what I want us to understand is this is what matters here. Hezekiah prays. Hezekiah goes to the right place. He goes to God and he prays. And it sounds a little strange here, doesn't it, that Hezekiah doesn't want to die. He is so passionate about not dying. And you'll see this even later on when he kind of reflects back on his experience in in the later verses. And what I want us to understand is that the Bible does say, doesn't it, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so you listen to this and you wonder, how in the world was he so passionate to not die? How could he be so upset about dying when, when to die is, Christ, is, is to gain? And I want us to remind us that death is not glamorous. You know, sometimes in the Christian circles, we can act as if it is some spiritual, um, a spiritual um, platform that we've arrived if we look at death as being glamorous. Yes, what we arrive at is glamorous, isn't it? The result is glamorous, but 1 Corinthians tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It is still an enemy. I do not want to go through the process of dying. It is not something I am looking forward to. And yes, I long for what awaits me afterwards. And I think also we have to remember that they did not have the fullness of the, of, of the revelation of Christ in the Old Testament. And so they still, in a sense, had a fear of death <laughs> and more than we might have. Because we see Christ Jesus. We have a fuller revelation of what death is really all about. Because we see Christ who is risen and raised from the dead. And we know there's nothing to fear in death. So the point here is that Hezekiah imperfectly does the right thing. He prays. And he cries out to God to deliver him. J.C. Ryle said this, Sickness helps to make us think seriously of God, our souls, and the world to come. And isn't that true? Sickness drives us to the place we need to be. It drives us to God and dependence on him. And so the good news is that God promises to bring real eternal salvation to all who, like Hezekiah, cry out to him in faith. The physical healing of Hezekiah in this passage gives us a small picture, doesn't it, of the greater spiritual salvation that God brings to all who cry out to him. For salvation. And God tells Hezekiah, I am going to save you. And at first, he says, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. You know, that's pretty good, isn't it? He was about to die, and God says, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. Uh, it's pretty amazing. And what is really uh, interesting is if you look towards the end of this chapter, um, in verse uh, 20, 21, we're given a little background information. For some reason, they put it at the end of the, of the chapter. And it says that God told Hezekiah to do something before he was healed. And God said to Hezekiah, Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. And in other words, God is saying, basically, take this medicine. Go to the doctors. Take this medicine and you will recover. 
And so we look at that, and I, I just want to make a quick point here. Is it any less of a miracle if God uses a means to, to save us? If God uses a means to heal us? Sometimes we think if it's directly from God, then it is a greater miracle. But the answer is it isn't at all. It doesn't make it any greater if God does or doesn't use a means. And I think if we understood that, that God often, not always, but often uses means to heal us. He uses doctors. He uses medicine. He uses all kinds of different means. And if we understood that, I think we'd be a much more thankful people to God as we should be. He is the one, ultimately, who always heals us. He also says, notice this, that God is going to deliver them, the people from the Assyrians. God is not only going to save Hezekiah, but he's also going to deliver the people in verse 6. And this might sound strange because in the last chapter, we ended up leaving off where God said that the, Hezekiah, that the Assyrians would no longer really threaten them, would no longer be a problem. And so you might read this and wonder, what's going on here? And there's a couple explanations. It could be that the threat never materialized. That could be the reality, what is being said here. Or it could be that this is not chronologically in order. And that is very possible that it's the case. Uh, it actually says, in those days at the beginning, which, makes it, which means that it doesn't have to be in chronological order. Um, it could be in thematical order, where he's trying to make a point. But either way, it's not really the most significant thing. The point is, that God says he's going to deliver the people and God says he's going to save Hezekiah. God does exceedingly and abundantly above whatever we could ask or imagine. Isn't it amazing? Hezekiah wasn't looking for all of this, but God gave him above and beyond whatever he could have asked. So how does God give us any indication for why he is going to act this way? I mean, what do we know? Why is God going to save him? And does God give us any inclination for why he's going to do that? And the reason we are told here that God responds is because he prayed. And I want us to understand that he prays in a humble fashion. He goes to God. He bows his knees in dependence on God. And God says that he hears such prayers. Listen to James 4 verse 6 where it says that God resists the proud but gives grace to to the humble. And if that is true, then God will always hear such prayers. He might not give us what we're looking for. He might not always respond the way we want. But know this, church, that God hears the prayers of the humble and he gives grace to the humble. The reason he responds this way is because God looks with compassion on his children because of their pitiful condition. God says, I have seen your tears. Do you realize that, church? Do you realize Uh, people of God, that God is compassionate towards our tears. David says, uh, metaphorically, that God puts his tears in a bottle. And he says that God writes his tears in a book. Isn't that awesome to know that God hears our, 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 sees our tears? That God is compassionate toward us? They don't go unseen when we cry out to God? And I think he is also motivated by his promises, in this case to David. You see, this isn't explicitly stated, but I think it's implicit. When we actually read the words, the God of David our father, that's what God says in his response here. You see, Hezekiah did not have a son yet. He did not have an heir. 
And so David's line that God had promised to continue was at stake. If he had died now, the the line of David would not have continued. And so I think this was all God's plan. God sovereignly orchestrated for Hezekiah to pray and for him to deliver him. A few more years, three years from now, Manasseh, his son, would be born. And we know that because Manasseh is 12 years old when Hezekiah dies, and he's going to die in 15 years. So Hezekiah's Hezekiah's son Manasseh is three years away from being born. But God is showing what he loves to do. He loves to show that he is mighty and powerful. He loves to wait to the very end when everything looks hopeless, when there's no heir to the throne, to miraculously and powerfully provide a child and to show that he is the one who fulfills the promises. Here we see that there's one hope for those in any condition. There's one hope for our salvation. There's only one hope to deliver us from our sin, and that is God. He is the only hope for our salvation. Listen to Acts 4 verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Praise God that there is salvation and that God is mighty to save. And he is pointing us towards himself through these afflictions and that God has designed that we be drawn to God, that we pray, that we cry out to him. And the afflictions are the means that bring us to that end. Sometimes God graciously provides us support for our faith. And that's what we see here with Hezekiah. God graciously supports his faith. He already has faith. But God graciously provides uh, uh, a miracle, a sign to undermine his faith and to strengthen it in verses 7 through 8. And it's not clear here, but if you read the parallel account in 2 Kings 20, verse 8 through 10, we are told that Hezekiah actually asks God for a sign. And uh, God grants him a sign. And boy, is it a sign. This is unbelievable. And it's hard to know exactly what's going on. It seems like God somehow turned back the clock, that the sun went back 10 spaces. And uh, what an amazing miracle of God. I don't know how he did it. No one can quite explain it, but it is a miracle and it is incredible. In one sense, you look at this and you say, if God can do the lesser healing Hezekiah, delivering Judah from the Assyrians, then clearly he can do, uh, if he can do the greater, he can clearly do the lesser, can't he? God is mighty to save. The greater is clearly the moving of the sun, and the lesser is clearly the saving of Hezekiah. God is mighty to save, and he reminds us of this through the great sign. So what would it be like to go back and reflect on the crisis? And that's the last section here, is really Hezekiah reflecting on the whole crisis. And he, he gives us, or helps us to understand what, what, what it's like to go through the affliction. And what God is doing through the affliction by recounting his own experience of the affliction when he faced his own death. And we see that in verses 9 through 22. And what we see that stands out here, and this is really incredible, is the honesty of Hezekiah in regards to the bitterness of his soul. He laments. He knows how to lament. And this is in the first half of these verses. Until um, about verse 15, all he does is lament and describe the struggle and the difficulty that he went through, the, the affliction that he suffered, and he is very honest and sincere about it. You know, I believe we need to be more honest like Hezekiah 
about the pain and the difficulties we experience. We need to learn to lament. We need to learn to speak like Hezekiah does, to pray to God like Hezekiah does, to speak psalms like he does. We need to show and to be honest about the fact that we are not immovable. And sometimes we like to pretend we are, don't we? Sometimes we like to lie to ourselves in the world and act like we are not moved by the afflictions. And the problem is, when we act this way, we also detract from the greatness of God's salvation. When we do not express the greatness of our trial, when we do not, when we ignore the affliction that we are experiencing, then we cannot properly magnify God when he saves us from the affliction. So it is very important that the church recognize that we need to be honest and truthful and straightforward and confess the affliction that we are going through so that we can magnify God and his salvation. Otherwise, all we're going to do is feed our pride and keep ourselves from magnifying God. In this reflection on his affliction, he actually says that death is an unwelcome thing. That death is coming like a robber. That it is just not right in verses 10 through 12. And he, he laments the fact that his life is cut off from him. It's as if he was robbed from his life in the middle of his years. And he is about 39 years old at this time. And the average lifespan is about 70 years old. And so he says, it's as if God has cut off my life. It's as if God has kept me from living a full life at the prime, at the very moment when I was really experiencing it. And he uses the image of a tent, isn't it? Doesn't he? And a tent is something that you might place down on the ground. It might appear like it's immovable for a while. But then suddenly you pick it up. You, you take out the stakes and you move it somewhere else. He said, that's what life's like. It just all of a sudden is picked up and taken away and moved. Life ends just like that. And then he expresses it as, a, as the image of a weaver's loom. Apparently a, a weaver will, will weave their cloth and continue to do that over and over and over again for a long period of time. And then all of a sudden he's done and he cuts it off and it's over. That piece is done. And in a similar way he says, life was almost cut out from under me. And this is true for all of us no matter how strong we think we are. Life is temporary and life at any moment can be cut off from us. Sickness, disease, age, in a moment, our lives could, be, could end. The end is just around the corner, in fact, for every one of us. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but life does tend to move fast, doesn't it? Before we know it, 10, 20, 30 years are past, and life just keeps moving on. There are no guarantees in this life. In this reflection on his experience of affliction, we can also see a very real conflict with the fact that God ultimately is behind all of our affliction, right? God is sovereign. Yet, he does not always deliver us from it, even though we cry out to him. Isn't this a real conflict that we have, verses 12 through 16? And notice what Hezekiah does here. He compares God to a lion. And he compares himself in the affliction to being in the lion's mouth. And he says, God, the lion, is chomping his bones to pieces all day long. And so he's expressing the real difficulty that he is going through. He cries out for God all day to save him, but yet he is not relieved from his struggle. And this is obviously before the prayer that we see here as he's going through this, this great sickness. 
You know, Hezekiah has better theology than a lot of us do. A lot of us try to save God from our suffering. A lot of us try to give God an escape from being responsible for our suffering. Hezekiah recognizes that God is, in fact, behind all of our suffering. He is sovereign, and he is in charge of our lives and our death. Remember what Joseph said? He said, you meant it for evil, meaning you purposed it for evil, but God meant it, purposed it for good. God is behind it, and he is ultimately sovereign in control. Even with Job, Satan had to ask God for permission to bring Job through suffering, didn't he? This means that God's ways can appear cruel, can't they? It's not wrong to say that God's ways appear cruel to us. It is wrong to charge God with being guilty of doing something wrong. But the reality is, from our limited perspective, it can appear that way sometimes. Even though we know God is not wrong, it can appear cruel to us. It is one thing to accuse God of being wrong. It is quite another thing to, uh, to say it appears from our perspective that God is harsh. Listen to what Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, verse 10 through 15. Listen to what he says about the difficulty of the struggle that God is bringing upon him. And I don't know if you've ever prayed like this, but listen to what he says. He says this. He is a bear, talking about God, lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has seated me with, sated me with wormwood. Does God ever appear that way to you? Does it ever appear that life is difficult and challenging and that God is harsh? Well, of course it does at times. But what we need to understand is that in this reflection on his affliction, we can see that affliction is ultimately for your good. And that's where it leads us, doesn't it? And that's where we need to go. And that is what Hezekiah acknowledges in verse 17 here. And listen to these words. I want to read this to you so you get it. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. He says, this bitter cup was the goodness of God in my life. That's what he's saying. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Afflictions was the class that he learned from to learn about God and who he was. What an amazing thought. And this is actually what Hezekiah expounds on for the rest of his, his, uh, his psalm here that he's reflecting on his affliction. He reflects on the good purposes that God has for his afflictions. And he says this, Affliction prods us to cry out to God to work his saving power in us. That's what he says in verse 16 when he says, Oh, restore my health and help me live. The affliction is the means to crying out to God to save us. Deliverance from affliction gives us a deeper appreciation of God's love. It gives us a fresh view of the love of God in verse 17b. Listen to this. In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. He had a fresh view of the love of God because he went through the affliction. Because God brought him through the affliction, he was able to see God's love all the clearer. 
Deliverance from affliction compels us to give thanks and praise to God that is due his name for his salvation. We see this in verses 18 through 19. He says, I will praise you. He is committed to praising and thanking God because God has delivered him from his affliction. And by the way, that is the very reason why we exist. We exist to praise God, to glorify him, to honor him, to thank him. And that is actually what a believer is all about in their lives. And so that's why we go in and out of affliction so that we can continually have fresh, fresh praise and and glory to God and give thanks to God every day for his goodness to us. The deliverance also gives us a renewed commitment to tell others the message of his faithfulness, starting with our own children. And notice he says this, the father makes known to the children your faithfulness. You know, our primary responsibility is to first tell our children of God's faithfulness and then to go out and tell others of God's faithfulness, isn't it? And he says, I have a fresh opportunity from God delivering to tell my future child, right? To tell my future children of God's faithfulness. Now this is, when you look at Manasseh, you might wonder, did Hezekiah fail, right? Manasseh was one, was, was notorious as one of the most wicked kings in the Bible. He was notoriously wicked. But that does not mean necessarily that Hezekiah has failed. You know, it even says, God says that his own people Israel have rebelled against him. It does not mean that Hezekiah was unfaithful, that Manasseh was not faithful to God. And in fact, what we read later on is he is famous for his repentance. He is famous. He's one of the most famous repenters in all of the Bible when God restores him and brings him back to himself. Now, it is often the case that children do follow after God, right? But that's not always the case, and we have to understand that. Deliverance finally motivates us to sing to God of his salvation in verse 20. And we close his reflection with these words. The Lord will save me and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. You see, the redeemed have a song. The redeemed have a song that never ends. It's a song that continues, that goes on and on and on. There is a never-ending depth to the well of God's grace and his mercy. So we keep drawing from it, and our song continues to go on. This is the song that doesn't end, that goes on and on, my friend, right? But it's not annoying. This is the song that never is annoying. It goes on and on and on. And that is what believers are known for. The song that never ends and keeps going. No matter what our positions are on this earth, when it comes down to it, we're really nothing more than mortal, right? We are not really different from each other. Death is coming our way. Afflictions are all around us. We are all mortal people. Getting out of bed in the morning is dangerous, isn't it? And death is the great leveler of all humanity. It levels us all off, no matter how great you appear to be in this life. The good news is that God has given us the answer. He is the answer. He is our Savior. Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6 reminds us of how God deals with our problem, how he delivers us. And think about this. The problem is sin. That's why the curse was brought on us. If we can deal with sin, 
then the problem is taken care of. Death is not to be feared. So listen to what God does in response to our problem. Look at how God saves us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus himself has come to deal with our sin problem. He saves us. And when sin is dealt with, death is not to be feared. Death is not our enemy anymore in its fullest sense. Praise God for his victory over death. And because of this, we can declare with 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57 that we have victory over death. Listen to this. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever I'm doing a, a funeral, I almost always put this in there. And the idea here is that death, um, sin, uh, because, because of sin, death is like a bee with a stinger, right? It's scary. It hurts. It's dangerous. Uh, or like a dog with a bite. But what Jesus has come to do is to de-sting the bee. He has come to take away the bite from the dog so that death is no longer to be feared. What is there to fear in a, beer with, a bee without a stinger or a dog without a bite? And the answer is nothing, nothing. Death is the gateway to the presence of God. And so we praise God for the victory that we have in Christ because of what he has done. If you are in Christ, my prayer to you is that God would teach us to number our days and give us a heart of wisdom. According to Psalm 90, verse 12. Imagine if you had 15 years to live. Imagine if God said, okay, you have one day left. 15 years or, or whatever God gave you. God has given you a certain amount of days. Let us, be, let us use those days. Look at those days of sobriety. Let's look at those days with soberness. And know that we have a fixed number of days. And let us live those days to their fullest. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you are not in Christ, then you need to know that very problem, the very problems in the world are doing you good by drawing you to look to Christ. Praise God for the problems in your life. You still have time. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ. He has graciously reminded us all around us that things are not right. Things are not okay. We need to be saved. Don't be blind. Ask God to open your eyes to the reality that you need to be saved. Flee to Christ right now for salvation. You're not guaranteed the next moment. After death comes judgment. So let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you today. We praise you because you are a mighty God who is powerful to save. Lord, we praise you that you have come and single-handedly brought salvation through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you came and walked among us and died on the cross in order that our sins might be forgiven. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to look to you today so that we might know the forgiveness of Christ. I pray that you would cause us to have minds, to have sober minds today. Help us to take into perspective the reality that our days are short 
And may we live them to their fullest. May we magnify your great name. May we be people who praise you, who give thanks, who tell of your faithfulness to the next generation. Lord, help us to be people who sing praises to you, Lord. Help us to remember that that is why we are here. And God, may you fill our hearts with a renewed sense of your love and your grace and your mercy. And may our song continue to grow louder. And may we never stop singing of our great Savior and his great salvation. We love you. We thank you for bringing us together, for allowing us to meet once again, Lord. What a, what a blessing it is, Lord, to be able to meet together and to praise your great name with God's people together again. In Jesus' name, amen.